Thousands of thousands of sacrifices were made, but fewer and fewer people were able to enter into each successive room along the way in the temple toward the Holy of Holies. And even that was heavily curtained off so that no one could come in and see God. The glory of the new covenant temple, though, is that sacrifice for sins has already been accomplished through the blood of Jesus once for all time. At his death, the veil was torn to no longer separate us from God. He unites us to himself and brings us into the heavenly temple in heaven with him. And he sends his heavenly spirit down to live in our hearts, making us a spiritual temple on this earth. The glory of the new covenant temple is that he no longer prevents sinful man from drawing near to him. Rather, he constructed it in such a way so as to freely bring repentant sinners fully into his presence. Brothers and sisters, having truly confessed our sins, God himself promises you the forgiveness of the Father, the victory of the Son, and the glory and empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Believe this and rejoice. And God's people say, Amen. God's word to us this morning begins in Exodus chapter 20. beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am Yahweh your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, Yahweh, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of Yahweh, your God, in vain, for Yahweh will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, But the seventh day is a Sabbath to Yahweh your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days Yahweh made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore Yahweh blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which Yahweh your God gives you. You shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. We'll turn now to Matthew chapter 5 and verse 17. Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass away from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and so teaches others shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, You shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. You have heard that the ancients were told, You shall not commit murder, and whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court, and whoever shall say to his brother, Raka, shall be guilty before the supreme court, and whoever says, You fool, shall be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. If therefore you are presenting your offering at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your offering there before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and present your offering. Make friends quickly with your opponent at law while you are with him on the way, in order that your opponent may not deliver you um, to the judge, and the judge to the officer, and you be thrown in prison." Truly I say to you, you shall not come out of there until you have paid up the last cent. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. 
But I say to you that everyone who looks on a woman to lust for her has committed adultery with her already in his heart. And if your right eye makes you stumble, tear it out and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand makes you stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. For it is better for you that one of your parts of your body perish than for your whole body to go into hell. And it was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the cause of unchastity, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. But I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is the footstool of his feet or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you make an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist who is evil, but whoever slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him also have your coat also. And whoever shall force you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks of you, and do not turn away from him who wants to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, in order that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes his Son to rise on the evil and the good, and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax gatherers do the same? And if you greet your brothers only, what do you, what do, you do more than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let us turn now to the back of your bulletin and read together as a congregation Psalm 63. Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you, as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I have looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory. Because your steadfast love is better than life, my lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich food, and my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night, for you have been my help, and the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you, your right hand upholds me, but those who seek to destroy my life shall go down into the depths of the earth. They shall be given over to the power of the sword. They shall be a portion for jackals. But the king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by him shall exult, for the mouths of liars will be stopped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Morning. I'm guessing that nobody would disagree with me when I say that our culture has, at best, a casual relationship with the truth. And we see that from the top of our government, but it's, it's embedded in the culture. Um, so that it seems like it's, it's getting worse where you can't trust what anybody says, the reports that, that come to us. This is not a new problem. I, uh, I had some work done on my house a couple months ago now. It's not finished yet. Um, so I had some concrete poured, and there was a, a little bit of an issue. And so there was a foot stuck in the concrete, not by my family, um, and so there's part of it undone. 
And there's a, a lot of hemming and hawing because our contract doesn't mention what should happen next. We had an, an agreement, but that agreement disappears as, uh, as time goes on. And there's a lot of instances like that in, in life where we struggle with truth, with trust. And our, our passage today in James deals a little bit with that. Well, I, I want, to, I want to th- us to think carefully about what James is asking of us. And so I'm going to read uh, just the one verse, and then we'll come back and read it in context here in a minute. But James says this. He says, but above all, this is James chapter 5, verse 12, but above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. It's an interesting verse. He's obviously taking up and summarizing Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount that Hyde just read for us. So we have a lengthier section in Matthew 5 in which Jesus teaches this this exact uh, command. Don't swear either by heaven or earth, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. So we need to answer two questions. First of all, what does James and what does Jesus mean when he says do not swear? Don't take up an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. And then within the context of the book of James, why does he put such emphasis on this verse? Why does he say above all? Here we're coming to the end of the book, and James has had some zingers for us. We're talking about a church that's suffering. They're scattered abroad, and there's all kinds of trial. And he's telling them to count it all joy. And as we go through the book, remember there are three primary commands. Be be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger. And we, we're headed towards the end of the book and embedded in this last section of the book that runs from chapter 5, verse 7 to the end. We have this string of commands that once again deal with what we do with our mouths. Be careful, the judge is at the door. Behold, he's coming, his coming is near. So don't complain against one another, but then he moves on, he says, but above all, do not swear. You would, let's pray. Father, we come to your word humbly, Lord. We need, we need you to teach and clarify, to convict us. Lord, we want to be people whose yes is yes and no is no, to hear and heed the words of Jesus. We don't want to fall into the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that's prevalent now all around us. And Lord, we know that we have been guilty of that. So we pray that you would use your word to cut that away, to cut the dross of hypocrisy, and Lord, to build us and make us as people of truth. And so, Lord, we pray that you give us ears to hear, that we would be quick to hear what your word has, said, has to say, that we would be slow with our speech so that it's careful and tested and that we would likewise be slow to anger as we respond to your word. Give us grace today. Lord, we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So I'm going to come back now, and we'll just read once again chapter 5, so that we have the context of this verse, and then we're going to look carefully at the language and the context both of Matthew chapter 5 and James to get an idea of what this means. And the reason I want to pay special attention to it is we do take oaths. In fact, as a church body, we've witnessed oaths recently. In a couple of weeks, we're going to witness another oath that takes place at a marriage covenant. And yet James seems to say, above all, don't swear, don't take an oath. And so are we right in doing that? And if so, what does it mean? What is, is God calling us to here in this verse And why does he say, but above all? So reading again in James chapter 5 from verse 1, James says this, Come now, you rich, weep and howl for your miseries which are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments have become moth-eaten. Your gold and your silver have rusted. Their rust will be a witness against you and will consume your flesh like fire. It is in the last days that you have stored up your treasure. Behold, the pay of the laborers who mowed your fields and which has been withheld by you cries out against you. 
and the outcry of those who did the harvesting has reached the ears of the Lord of Sabaoth. You have lived luxuriously on the earth. You've led a life of wanton pleasure. You've fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter, and you have condemned and put to death the righteous man. He does not resist you. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. Behold, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and the late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not complain, brothers, against one another, that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we count those blessed who endured. You've heard of the endurance of Job. You've seen the outcome, the perfect end of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion. He is merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Instead, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praises. Is anyone sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will restore the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up, and if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another so that you may be healed. The effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. He prayed again, and the sky poured forth rain. The earth produced its fruit. My brothers, if any of you strays from the truth and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So we're all on the same page. I want to start off then with thinking about the nature of oaths. If you've read through your Bible recently, you'll notice that there's oaths all throughout the Bible, and most prominently, God is taking those oaths. It's difficult for us to read these verses and hear Jesus and then James say, but above all, don't swear, don't take an oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no. And you think about what God himself said to Abraham. So all the way back in Genesis chapter 22, there there. On the mountain, God has just rescued Isaac, and he says, Surely, I swear, with my right hand, I swear that I will multiply your descendants after you. And so the author of the Hebrews picks up this text, and he explains for us then what oaths are and what they do. So if you would turn with me to Hebrews chapter 6, that will help us answer the question of what an oath is. So Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 13, the author of the Hebrews is reflecting on that very event. And he says, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. And so God gave a surely, as a swearing, a corroborating witness, which is himself. I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply you. And thus, having patiently waited, Abraham obtained the promise. And this is the reason why. When men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath is given as confirmation, as an end of every dispute, in the same way. So he's comparing then God to men. We take oaths, and the author of the Hebrew says that we swear by someone greater than ourselves. And that oath, that swearing then, is the end of the dispute. And so... What's going on when, when you take an oath? When we take an oath as men, we're saying my testimony is not sure enough. And so we're going to take and call alongside a witness that's greater than us, one that you can believe. So you could do this in a sense where you're not necessarily swearing, but you, you call in another witness on earth, and you say, come, come uh, co corroborate my testimony. That word's hard for me to say. Corroborate. <laughs> say that one five times. In front of everybody. 
So, as men, we have this problem in that our word is not sure. God doesn't have that. His word is absolutely sure. But we struggle with this. And so, if you think about our culture and where oaths take place, there's only a few forms of verbal oaths that are left. But when you sign a document, you're signing it, and it's a form of an oath. It's a surety in which you're taking on legal language. And who stands behind that language? Well, in, in our world, it's the Supreme Court of the United States of America that stands behind the language that says that we will ensure the veracity of what this person is saying. So if, the, if they're lying, we'll come along and we will correct the mistake. It doesn't always happen that way. But that's, that's the purpose of those documents. And so when you transfer a title in your house, it's a deed of covenant because you're making a covenant. You're taking witness and you're saying, this property now belongs to this new owner and we will not try to take it back. So we won't come back with guns and say, well, we're sitting in the house, it belongs to us. So men swear by one greater than themselves. This happens on playgrounds, too. Children take, and they're trying to, uh, to corroborate their, their incomplete witness. And they, they do so very imperfectly. But they'll, they'll swear oaths because they hear their parents doing something similar. And so they'll swear to God or they'll swear on their mother's graves, all kinds of things that don't make a whole lot of sense. But what they're trying to do is bolster their testimony. Now, this can take place with regards to something that you're saying is true, so a witness of something that happened in the past, or a witness of something that will happen in the future. And so you think about what God did. He gave a covenant with Abraham. I will surely do this. And the surety that you have is not only am I saying it, I'm giving my name as the guarantor of the covenant. So verse 17 says, in the same way. So just like men do this, and it's the end of the dispute, God, desiring even more to show the heirs of the promise, the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath. So he took an oath. In order that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie. So you have God himself saying it, his word, and then we have the extra assurance of the oath. He cannot lie. So we have two witnesses then coming before us so that we may have strong encouragement, we who have fled for refuge in laying hold of the hope that is set before us. And so even now today, we look back on God's testimony, his oath, and the author of the Hebrews says we do that and it's our hope. We hang on to it. It's an anchor that goes within the veil so that we have a double assurance we do not doubt, we don't fall back, because God took an oath, I will surely bless you and multiply you. I will give you this inheritance. And so the author of the Hebrews doesn't say, well, God did a bad thing there. So we have to ask, if God bases our covenant relationship on an oath, how should we respond to that? Is God the only one who has the right to take this kind of oath or should take this kind of oath for assurance? The author of the Hebrews opens up the door. He says, well, men do this. He doesn't say whether it's right or wrong. Men swear by one greater than themselves. And that's the essence of an oath. If you're not doing it by one greater than yourself, it's kind of meaningless. right? I can bring alongside my son and say, well, he's going to corroborate my testimony that indeed we have a contract, but it doesn't mean a whole lot because his word is not greater than my word. He doesn't offer any extra assurance. And so in the world of men, when we call on God to be our witness, to act as our corroborating testimony that what we say or what we will do is true, we're calling him alongside to speak with assurance to the people that we're speaking that oath to to give that assurance that a testimony greater than ours is here. And corresponding to that, when we do that, there is danger because we're calling on God to make sure that the oath, that covenant, is fulfilled. 
And so when you hear this in, in the vernacular, you cross your heart and hope to die, well, it, it, it's misleading, but it comes from a religious nature in which you're taking the cross and you're saying, all right, I'm crossing myself. I'm, I'm, I'm taking up a sign of who God is, and I'm hoping that if it's, if it's not true, he'll, he'll put me to death. That's what an oath is, that God, God is the assurance. He will stand in the gap between you and truth. So that's what an oath is. It, it acts as a witness, and it's a promise that the corroborating witness, the, the oath sealer, will act as a judge if our words are untrue. So we see that then with the courts of our land. They judge us if our written testimony is untrue. Now, they do nothing for spoken testimony. Not in our land. And this only works if the one you're swearing by has more credibility than yourself. We already read then what's the purpose of an oath. In the view of the author, author of the Hebrews, it ends the dispute. And so you're arguing, you're arguing, and you have two people with, uh, they're on, on par with one another, and yet you bring someone greater in, at greater as the mediator of the dispute through an oath. And so uh, you can think back in the Old Testament, there's many examples of this, but think about Jacob and Laban. And they're, they're fighting, and Laban comes chasing, chasing after Jacob, and uh, there's a disagreement, there's a dispute going on around who's who and whose territories is whose, and finally it comes to an end with an oath. And there's a pillar set up that's a witness that stands between them that this oath will be maintained. But later on in, in that chapter, it says that God is the guarantor. God is the one who stands there as witness. He's the guarantor of that oath. So it ends a dispute. It creates a covenant. And what's so important here is that our relationships, our relationship with God is built on covenant. Our relationships with one another are built on covenant covenant. And so oaths are taken, they're sealed, and God is the witness. So when you get married, you, the traditional language says, before God, I'm making this vow, this covenant vow in which I will do X, Y, and Z. I will love my wife. I will take care of her. And it's dangerous. We don't always think of that in in the context of a marriage ceremony, but it is dangerous because we're calling on God to make sure that we keep that vow. And of course, there's many vows in the Old Testament, um, and we'll talk a little bit about those, but I want to think then just briefly what God says about oaths in the, in the Old Testament. So if you would turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 6. And once again, we'll do a little bit of uh, page turning just to make sure you know where all the books in your Bible are. So Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 13. God says, You shall fear only Yahweh your God, and you shall worship Him only. So thinking back to the words of the Ten Commandments we read, those first three commandments that deal with how we relate to God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself any graven images, and you shall not take the name of Yahweh your God in vain. All of them are encompassed here. You shall feel, fear only Yahweh your God. You shall worship him and swear by his name. Here, then there's the command, when you swear, you must swear by the name of Yahweh. You shall not follow other gods, any of the gods of the peoples who surround you. For Yahweh, your God, in the midst of you is a jealous God. Otherwise, the anger of Yahweh, your God, will be kindled against you, and he will wipe you from the face of the earth. And this isn't the only place where we see language like this. In chapter 10 of Deuteronomy, he says, Fear Yahweh, your God, serve him, be loyal to him, and take no oaths only in his name. So our principle here is if you take an oath, at least in the Old Testament, if you take an oath, you may only take it in the name of Yahweh. There can be no other gods, and that makes sense, of course. If you're calling on a greater witness, a greater testimony, and you call on the name of Baal or any other name, then you've elevated that person to the greater witness. You've violated 
the first and the second commandments. In Jeremiah, he's talking about people that, that are going to be transformed, and he says, Once they taught my people to swear their oaths using the name of the god Baal, but they must swear oaths using my name, saying, As surely as the Lord lives, I swear. If they do these things, then they will be included among the people I call my own. So in the Old Testament, there is a if and only if statement. You must, if you are God's people, swear only by his name. And if you swear only by his name, you are included then in God's people. You are part of his people. So that's the first principle. You must only, if you swear, swear in the name of Yahweh. Now secondly, Leviticus chapter 19, so flip forward a book. And uh, if you recall, this is a chapter that much of the Sermon on the Mount and particularly James's epistle is based on. We've been coming back here almost every week in the book of James. And the section that we've been reading from begins, or at least is, this, is, this is at the beginning of this section. And so we'll look then in verse 12. You shall not swear falsely by my name. So this should be self-obvious. If you swear, and you swear in the name of Yahweh, you must not swear falsely. So what you say must be true. You must uphold your word if and when you swear in the name of Yahweh. Because if you don't, verse 12, you are profaning the name of your God. I am Yahweh. So what does the word profane mean? At the root, it just means common. So you're taking God's name and you're attaching it to something you say. You say, this is true. As Yahweh lives, this is what I'll do. I will keep covenant with you. And then you turn your back on that and say, well, the situation changed. It's a little too hard now. So I'm not going to keep covenant with you. I'm, I'm going to have to break it at this point. God says, if you do that, you have treated as common the name of Yahweh, your God. So you've taken that name and you've treated it just like, just like anybody else out there. And the problem is God's name is holy. God's name is set apart. It's set in the Old Testament on his house. And what's common cannot go in. There's a problem when the common and the holy mix. And so when you treat God's name as common, it necessarily brings wrath. And so this is a simple, simple principle, of course. If you, take, if you take a vow, if you take an oath in the name of Yahweh, and you cannot take it by any other name, then you must keep that vow or you have profaned the name of Yahweh. And finally, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 23. We'll try to slow down on the page flipping. And verse 21. So now we take up the discussion of when you make a vow. And I, I should just note, there's, there can be some confusion between what's an oath and what's a vow. Uh, oath is the, the bigger category in which you're taking God's name alongside what you say as, as your witness. A, a vow a vow is usually done when you're, you're making a, a commitment or a promise to do something. And so it, it would be a subset of an oath. So Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 21. When you make a vow to Yahweh your God, you shall not delay to pay it, for it would be sin in you, and Yahweh your God will surely require it of you. And so he's just reiterating then what we already know. If you vow, then you must keep it, because if you don't, it is sin, and Yahweh your God will require it of you. He is the guarantor of his name. However, verse 22, if you refrain from vowing, it would not be sin for you. And so there's no requirement then that you do this, at least not in the context of Deuteronomy chapter 23, and we'll have to come back to that question.
question, are there any times when there is a requirement? Verse 23, you shall be careful to perform what goes out from your lips just as you have voluntarily vowed to Yahweh your God what you've promised. And so in this context, he's thinking about the free will vow, the, which, which can be an offering. If God, you do this, then I'm going to give you. So think about then Hannah. Hannah made this vow in which she called on God. She asked for his help to bring a son, and then she promised, she vowed that she would give her son to Yahweh. He would be adopted into the house of Yahweh, and she kept her vow. Of course, there's examples in the Bible of people that did not. We won't go through those, but there's a, a warning, a warning embedded in there. And then finally, don't turn there, but I just want to read you the portion of Ecclesiastes that deals with this as well. Guard your steps as you go to the house of God. Draw near to listen. Think about James. Be quick to hear. Draw near to listen rather than to offer the sacrifice of fools. For they don't know they are doing evil. Do not be hasty in word or impulsive in thought to bring up a matter in the presence of God. For God is in heaven and you are on earth. Therefore, let your words be few. For the dream comes through much effort and the voice of a fool through many words. When you make a vow to God, do not be late in paying it, for he takes no delight in fools. Pay what you vow. It's better that you should not vow than that you should vow and not pay. Do not let your speech cause you to sin, and do not say in the presence of the messenger of God that it was a mistake. Why should God be angry on account of your voice and destroy the work of your hands? For in many dreams and in many words there is emptiness. Rather, fear God. So it's a serious issue what we do with our words when we call on God as our witness, it's serious. And Solomon says, don't be quick, be slow. So think about that if you're getting married. Be slow, consider fully what you are promising. When you vow, if you vow, know that the Lord God is the guarantor of the vow and he will call it to account. So what do we do with James? All of that seems fine. Here's, here's the rules. Vow only in the name of Yahweh. If you vow, make sure you keep it. And there's no requirement then to make a vow, to make, make said oath. But James and Jesus take up these words. They say, don't vow at all is what Jesus says. James says, don't make a vow by heaven or earth but rather let your yes be yes and your no, no. So what are they talking about? Is it wrong now as we move into the new covenant? Has something changed in which you should no longer make an oath? We already considered the fact that we still hang our hope on the oath of God. The oath made to Abraham of which we are heirs and which we are made doubly sure because God spoke with an oath so that we have hope that enters into the veil, that acts as an anchor so that we don't turn back, we're not afraid, all because God said this with an oath. But throughout the New Testament, we find that Paul also takes oaths. So, so this is rather confusing. He calls on God as his witness. In fact, and we'll look at this in just a minute, in 1 Corinthians, he's even talking about the words of Christ. He says, do you think my yes is is a no, and I'm vacillating here and there. And he says, as God is my witness, it was not so. So he takes an oath while talking about Christ's words to not take oaths. That's confusing. If you would turn with me to Matthew 23. So we read, we read the Sermon on the Mount in which Christ begins his ministry and he works through the the words of God on Mount Sinai, particularly the 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 10th commandment, and bookended in the ministry of Christ, then we have these woes which reflect back. And these are spoken directly to the Pharisees. And so we won't read all of them, but we'll just we'll start in verse 13. And Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you've shut off the kingdom of heaven from men. 
You do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, even while you, for a pretense, make long prayers. Therefore, you shall receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites, because you travel about on the sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you blind guides who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing. But whoever swears by the gold of the temple, he's obligated. You fools, you blind men, which is more important, the gold or the temple that sanctified the gold? Whoever swears by the altar, that's nothing. But whoever swears by the offering upon it, he's obligated. You blind men, which is more important, the offering or the altar that sanctifies the offering. Therefore, he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. And he who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells within it. And he who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So we won't finish the passage, but you can hear reverberating through this passage that there's a condemnation of the Pharisees, and it centers around this one word, you are hypocrites. He says it seven times. In each woe, you are a hypocrite. And specifically here, we're looking then at this woe about swearing an oath. You are a hypocrite, and you are a hypocrite because you've created these divisions of oaths. You take the temple, and you come, and you swear by the gold of the temple or, or the temple itself, and they've made a dividing line. You say, all right, if you swear by the temple, that's nothing, but if you swear by the gold of the temple, then you're bound by the rules that we just read about. If you swear in the name of Yahweh, then you must pay it. But there's a division line of what's holy. So if you swear by the gold of the temple, you better keep your vow. If you swear by the temple, eh, it's okay. You're not going to get in too much trouble. So there's a loophole. You fools, you blind men, which is more important? You think about an example of this. Jesus condemns them. He says that uh, earlier on, well, you make, you make promises, but then you say, wait a second, all my, all my gold, all my riches, they're Corbin. I, I, can't, I can't give them to my parents. They're dedicated. They're, they're mincing words. They're weaving a path in which they can say one thing and do another. So he says, you are hypocrites. And each example builds on that, so you can swear by the altar, and that doesn't mean anything, but if you swear by the offering on it, then, then you have to keep it, or God will come with fire and brimstone and make sure. So there's the guarantor. You blind men, which is more important? So he says you, you're drawing a line of separation that's not there, and his conclusion is he who swears by the altar swears both by the altar and by everything on it. He who swears by the temple swears both by the temple and by him who dwells in it. He who swears by heaven swears both by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So you cannot walk away from swearing in the name of Yahweh. No matter what you do, you, you think you're finding a loophole. You think you've got a, a sweet dividing line where God's going to pay attention on the one side and not on the other, and so you can, you can trick and fool the passerby. You can pretend to swear an oath but not do anything about it. He says, you blind guides, you hypocrites, you fools. Every oath, ultimately, Jesus is saying, is taken in the name of Yahweh. There's a command, only take an oath in the name of the Lord, but no matter how you try to wiggle out of it, every oath taken is taken in the name of the Lord whether you hear that commandment or not. So turn back to Matthew chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 23, he's talking directly to the Pharisees. In Matthew chapter 5, he's talking to the multitude, the disciples, and, and so not directly then to the scribes and Pharisees. And he opens then with blessings. So those blessings and those woes book in his work. But in the middle, he says in verse 20, as we read, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So this is what they're doing, particularly with oaths. They're taking them and they, they bear them lightly. It goes back to the third commandment, the third word, you shall not take 
carry, lift the name of Yahweh your God lightly. He says, you think you're finding a way around it. You think you're not lifting up his name, but you are. Everything that you say, every oath that you take is done in the presence of Yahweh, whether you, you draw this dividing line in your minds or not. He says to us, to the people, the multitudes listening, I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. And we know this section. So first he talks about murder. He talks about the sixth word, the commandment. And he, and he says, well, there, there's more. You must cut it off at the base. And so you heard it said, you shall not commit murder. But there again, they've, they've drawn a hypocritical dividing line. And he says, this goes all the way down to your relationship with your brother. So much so that the one who says, you fool, is guilty. Hold that in your mind because we need to come back to that. So it does the same thing with adultery and then divorce, and, and, and these, these are walking through the commandments. So commandment six, you shall not murder. Commandment seven, you shall not commit adultery. Commandment eight, you shall not steal. Divorce is, comes under the category of stealing in Exodus 21 through 23. We won't go into that today, but then the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. And so verse 33, he says again, you have heard that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but you shall fulfill your vows to Yahweh. And the Pharisees did some legalese, and they said, well, you've got to fulfill your vows to Yahweh. You can't, you can't vow anything not to Yahweh. So they made these categories then, and that's what he's talking about. In verse 34, he says, I say to you, make no oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by earth, for it is the footstool of his feet. So you see the same point there. If you, if you make an oath by heaven, well, God's sitting on his throne in heaven. Heaven is his throne room. If you make an oath by earth, the earth is his footstool. He's still the guarantor of the oath. Or by Jerusalem, and he says it's the city of the great king. It's a reference to Psalm 48. And then he says something slightly different. Nor shall you make an oath by your head. So in this, in this reference, he, he doesn't say, well, God owns your head, but he says you cannot make one hair white or black. This one sounds a little bit different. I don't know for sure, but I, I was thinking about, well, why does he say this? In Leviticus 13, there's a set of holiness commandments, cleanliness, in which you're, you're talking all about the boils on the skin, it makes for great dinnertime reading. <laughs> and the rules of said boils and scabs on the skin and on the head, well, if you have a boil and a white hair grows out of it, then you're unclean. If the scab on your head grows a yellow, thin, sickly hair, you're unclean. But if a black hair grows out of it, you're clean. You may enter. He says, you cannot swear by your head. You don't even control that. You don't control your own cleanliness. Instead, let your statement be yes, yes, or no, no, and anything beyond these is of evil. So how do we take this? We have all these vows, Old Testament, New Testament, God, Paul, everybody's swearing oaths. I wouldn't say that it's all the time. They're done carefully. But what does Jesus mean? I think first we have to take it in the context of this sermon. And so remember what he says. He says about murder. He says, if you say to your brother, you fool, you shall be guilty enough to go to the fiery hell. Well, think about the passage we just read in, in Matthew chapter 23. What did Jesus say? You fools! Is Jesus therefore guilty? The answer is no. Jesus is speaking and he's teaching and he's, he's cutting off at the base the scribes and the Pharisees and all of their distortions. He says your righteousness must surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. So you, you can't draw these, these made-up dividing lines. Instead, God looks at everything. 
We must cut sin off at the very root. And so he says, he says, well, if your eye is lusting, pluck it out. And so Jesus' language here is hyperbolic, but on purpose. Because at root, he says, if you do these things, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. So if, you're, if, you're, if your eye is offensive, pluck it out because it's better to go eyeless. It's better to go without your right hand into the kingdom of heaven. It's better to go with no oaths than to make an oath and not keep it. So let your yes be yes and your no, no. I promise you one more piece of evidence, so first turn to 1 Corinthians, and then we'll go back to James. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, or sorry, chapter 1, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. So Paul's talking about his plans. And he says this, For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world, especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand, and I hope you will understand until the end, just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud, as you also are ours in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And this is our confidence. I intended at first to come to you that you might twice receive a blessing. That is to pass your way into Macedonia and again from Macedonia to come to you and by you to be helped on my journey to Judea. Therefore I was not vacillating when I intended to do this, was I? Or that which I purposed? Do I purpose according to the flesh that with me there should be yes, yes, and no, no at the same time? But as God is faithful, our word to you is not yes and no. He calls on God as his testimony, as his witness, as his oath to say, I wasn't vacillating. Now, we have to be careful here because Paul said, this is what I want to do, but God changed his plans. Turn with me to James chapter 5. So when he makes an oath, he's making an oath about something that is sure. This was not our purpose. As God is faithful, as God is my witness I was not vacillating. My answer was not yes, yes, and no, no. I wasn't mixing up the two. James says, Above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath. So he uses the same language as Jesus. But let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. So a few details. I don't think that under the right occasion, oaths are out of the question. So when you come to a marriage ceremony, a covenant ceremony, that's how covenants are formed. They are an oath, a vow. This is what I will do. Now, we have to be careful to keep those vows. And when we vow... When you vow at a wedding, you're vowing to what God already calls you to. God already demands what a marriage looks like, and we vow that we will obey. Now, by God's grace, if we fall, we can fall on our knees for mercy before God, and He is faithful to forgive. But that's not the idea that we come with into the vow, that I have this safety net. Instead, we come, if we're calling on God, we must keep that vow. But James's point here is, above all, my brethren, do not swear either by heaven or by earth. After all, if you do that, we already found from Jesus that you are swearing in the name of Yahweh, whether you think you are or not. He is the guarantor, or with any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no, no, so that you may not fall under judgment. Why does he say above all? This is what I think. Turn back to chapter 1. I haven't spent any time talking about this word, just passing by it. But read with me in verse 2, and I want to highlight one word. Consider it all joy, my, brother, when you, my brothers, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect, maturing end, 
that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That word complete is a compound word. It means all the parts together. Now, think through James. You can read James as a referendum on double-mindedness. He makes that word, it's the, he's the only one that uses that word. He may have made it up. You, you, be, you cannot be double-minded. Everything that he says, he says with regards to this, you, you cannot have this line down, your, down the middle of your your heart, soul, and body, in which on the one side you bless God and on the other side you curse man, it cannot be. It cannot be that you say you have faith but you have no works that's meaningless. You can only be whole in Jesus. He says God gives us trials to highlight this so that we would be made mature, full of wisdom and complete. That means so that we don't have this compartmentalized self in which we have schizophrenia, dissociative identity disorder, and, and you got two people in one, one which says, I trust God with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength, and I love him with all that I am, and the other one that says, well, I'll do whatever I want. It must not be. And so everything James says centers around this, we must be whole, all parts together, this word is only, compound word is only used one other time. It's used by Paul at the end of the epistle to the Thessalonians. And he says, I pray for you that your soul, spirit, and body would be whole together. There wouldn't be some separation between them. And I think this is what Paul is getting at. Above all, we're people that are made, chapter 1, verse 17 and 18, we're people that are brought forth by the word of truth. God spoke creation into existence by powerful words, and everything that he said happened. In Isaiah 55, Isaiah tells us, he reminds us that the word of God goes forth. It does not return empty or void. It does exactly what he tells it to do. We are people that are born by that word, and our words have to be considered with that same level of sobriety so that what we say, we do. Now, James tells us how to talk. He says, when you're making plans that you don't control, you say, as the Lord wills. But above all, we are people who are born of the, the word of truth. It's implanted in us. We receive that word, and we're called to speak those words, to speak in truth so that our yes is yes and our no is no. And so in one regard... God's name always rests on us. His temple, his house is made among us. So you don't travel now to a temple, but now God's name rests among his people, always there. We lift it up in praise, and, and he's enthroned then upon our praises, and so God's name always dwells on us. We always bear it according to the third commandment, and so we cannot bear it lightly or emptily so that every word, every deed speaks a truth about who God is is. So James says, above all, let your yes be yes. Don't be two people. Two words be one. Don't call yourself children of Abraham, Christians, and be children of the devil in truth. God gives trial, and it shows us where this, where, where we have a divided spirit, where we're double-souled. When trouble comes, by God's gift, it shows us it shows us where we are double-minded. In Acts, the synagogue of the freedmen responded to Stephen, of whom they were jealous, and they brought witness against him under oath before the council, and they lied in order to bring Stephen down. In Acts chapter 23, again, the Jews come together and they take an oath. They say, we will not eat until we kill this man, Paul. They're double-minded. They call on the name of Yahweh and yet care nothing for what he says. God says, let's not be hypocrites. Let your yes be yes and your no, no. And so in one sense, every word that we say is an oath because we're people of the name of Yahweh. 
He is the guarantor for who we are. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we need your help because words run off our lips so easily and yet you are the example. Words are what made the heavens and the earth. By word, you made covenant with us. By your word, we have hope and surety and confidence. Lord, we want to speak like you speak with sure words, true words. And so help us to do that, Lord so that we wouldn't be vacillating people, that we wouldn't say yes and no, we wouldn't hedge our bets, but we would be known as people of truth. Lord, we want to be like you. So we pray that you would continue your good and gracious work in us and that where we need transformation, that you would bring the trouble that highlights it and by the gift of your spirit, the implanting of your word and the love of our brothers, that we would be transformed. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.